Good morning. How are you fine folks this morning? Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and yada, yada, yada. Hope you all had a great Christmas uh, time. Uh, with, hope you had some time to spend with family and with friends. And if you don't have any family or friends, I hope you just had a good time hanging out with Jesus. Whatever it took, I, I hope that you have been able to uh, just enjoy uh, this, this holiday season. I've been blessed immensely. Hang with my grandchildren. Uh, it kind of rejuvenates Christmas all over again. It's a lot of fun. And uh, hey, I got uh, one really interesting uh, Christmas gift that think about next year. Uh, someone gave me a, a card that was actually um, through World Vision. You donated like a goat or a cow or, or, or some money to clean water uh, to a village. And tells you a little bit about the village and, 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 and what you're doing. And man, that is a great, that is a great kingdom gift. Uh, you ever seen about this on, on World Vision? You can get all these different gifts to give to people, and you're actually just partnering with them to give it to. A, no, it was really a, a, a cool gift. Think about that. My name is Greg Boyd, uh, and it's good to see you all here this morning. What I want to do this morning, the last service of 2008, the last sermon of 2008, uh, I want to talk on something that is about as foundational to the kingdom as, as you can get. Uh, we're going back to the book of Luke, of course. We took a little break during the Christmas season. We're going to go back uh, to where we left off several weeks ago. Uh, we ended several weeks ago with the, the odd parable of the dishonest manager who saw that he was going to get fired, and so he went and cut deals with all of his boss's customers before he got fired, so that when he got fired, they all liked him, and they welcomed him into their homes so he wouldn't be out on the streets. And Jesus says, be smart like that. He's not saying be dishonest like that, but he is saying be smart, because the reality is, is we're all going to get fired. We're all going to die. And when you die, you lose everything that you have right now. So before, you, before that happens... Uh, we're to be making friends with the coming kingdom, make friends of heaven, so that we are not going to be homeless when we die. And so we're to reframe everything in our life uh, in that eternal perspective, manifesting the reality that we're friends of the coming kingdom by how we steward the, the short amount of life that we have here. It's very, very short, isn't it? It's incredibly short. Uh, and so we're to use it for a kingdom advantage. Now, Jesus is going to build on that. And I want to entitle this message, Our One and Only Allegiance, because that's the theme that governs these next four verses. We're in the book of Luke, chapter 16, and we'll start with, with verse 13. I'll read this passage and sprinkle in a few exegetical comments, and then we'll come back to the main point of this passage uh, and <clears throat> chew on it a little more deeply. Chew on it more deeply, chew on it more thoroughly, go a little deeper with it, whatever. All right. So it says, No one can serve two masters. Can do it. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. For example, you cannot serve both God and money. Note here, just put it in your brain, we'll come back to it. You cannot serve two masters. He's not saying simply that you can't serve two masters equally. He's saying you cannot serve two masters, period. It's one of the most radical, I think, most brilliant, and also most misunderstood teachings of Jesus. So we're going to chew on it a little bit later on. He applies it specifically to money uh, in, this, uh, in this passage. Um, and that's consistent with what we see in, throughout the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. Because money is, 
is one of the main competing masters against God. And greed is one of the number one sins that's emphasized throughout the Bible. But we've been hammering that one pretty good the last couple of months, so that's not going to be our focus here this morning. I'm going to look more generally at the principle that you can't serve two masters. But let's move on. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. The word sneering there in Greek just means to turn up your nose. Um, and so it's not that they were going, or anything like that. They were just going, hmm. Who does he think he is? Maybe they're going like this. So they're just kind of like dismissing him. So Jesus says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Folks, if it's popular, be paranoid. <laughs> it might be something that you got to swim upstream against. And what Jesus is saying is to uh, these, these, these folks, he says, look, you can look good and you can look religious and, and you can make a lot of money if you tell people what they want to hear and you can justify yourself in the light of the fact that a lot of people are hearing you. But see, a lot of what people want to hear, what they highly value is detestable to God. And whenever religious leaders uh, like the Pharisees, use their authority to just give people what they want to hear, it's detestable to God. And whenever religious leaders like the Pharisees use their religious superiority or use their religious influence to help people feel superior over others, like the Pharisees did, that's detestable to God. And whenever uh, the, uh, religious leaders use their authority to indulge people in their de fallen desire to accumulate as much wealth and comfort as they can here and now, that's detestable to God. And then Jesus says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, referring to John the Baptist. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and people are forcing their way into it. Now, Jesus and other authors of the New Testament divide up history into two segments. There's pre-Jesus and post-Jesus. There's pre-kingdom and, and, and then there's kingdom. So the law and the prophets are pre-Jesus. And then starting with John the Baptist, is, it comes the inauguration of the kingdom. So John the Baptist, who announced the coming of Christ, is sort of the dividing line. And now there's a new program. It's the good news of the kingdom that is being preached. And then Jesus says, according to the TNIV version that I read from, that people are forcing their way into it. What does that mean? It gives you the picture of sort of the stampede in the kingdom. Kind of like you had at Walmart on, on, on Black Friday. People are just, you know, forcing their way into the kingdom. But that doesn't seem to be true, does it? Uh, it wasn't true in Jesus' day. There's this mad rush to get into the kingdom. And it honestly doesn't seem very true today. Sometimes there's a mad rush in the other direction. But what's with this mad rush to get in the kingdom? People are forcing their way in. And how do you force your way into the kingdom? Anyways, now here's the thing. The term barazo in Greek uh, can mean to force or to compel or to urge. And in the context it's used here, it's in the middle voice for those of you who are interested in this sort of thing. And that means it can be translated as an active thing or a passive thing. In other words, it can be translated, people are forcing their way into the kingdom, or it can be translated, people are being forced 
or compelled or urged to get into the kingdom. And I am totally convinced the latter translation is the better one. I don't like to disagree with the TNIV uh, version uh, often, but in this case, I have to. I just think that the the better translation is the one you find in versions like the New uh, English Translation and others, where, where they translate it something like this. Since that time of John the Baptist... The good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is being urged to enter into it. And see, that, that makes sense. It means that kingdom people are to live with this, this desire to urge people to enter into the kingdom, to compel them to enter into the kingdom by the way that we live and by our words to urge people to submit to the king and come into the kingdom. That makes sense. But no one forces their way into the kingdom. You don't muscle your way into God. Uh, the only way into the kingdom is by submitting humbly and coming to the Lord on that basis. Okay, let's go back uh, to this main point, the main theme that Jesus starts this passage with. No one can serve two masters. Our one and only allegiance. I want to pray for a moment before we start chewing on this. Father, I pray for everybody in this auditorium and for everybody who's listening through podcasts, our podrishners. I pray for those who are watching on television. Uh, Lord, that you would, as they're hearing this right here and right now, open our spiritual ears and our hearts and our lives to receive your word in all of its force. And God, to uh, have the kingdom go into our life in all of its radical beauty. God, help us not to settle for compromised, commonsensical uh, modifications of your word, but to hear it as it is said in all of its force, in all of its radicalness, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. You cannot serve two masters. Often, the way to best get the depth and the beauty of the word is to struggle with it, to ask questions of it. And so the question I want to ask, and this is what most of this message is going to be about, is how can that be right? We cannot serve two masters. Because it seems to me that all of us serve more than two masters, and we're pretty good at it. Um, In fact, it seems pretty normal to serve more than two masters. Now think about this. A master is simply anyone or anything that you serve. Anyone or anything that you feel an obligation towards. Anyone or anything that you have an allegiance towards. Anyone or anything that you have to do things uh, in relationship to. It's anyone or anything that you assume a servant posture toward that is a master. So let's ask ourselves, what are some of the masters of our life? Who or what do you assume a servant posture toward? Who or what do you have an obligation to serve? Who or what do you make sacrifices for? Who or what do you invest a certain amount of time in? Who or what do you think about a lot? Who or what do you have part of your self-worth wrapped up in? Who or what has the power to affect your life, affect your emotions, affect your behavior? That who or what is a master because you're serving it. Some of our masters are maybe destructive and harmful and damaging, but a lot of the masters that we feel compelled to serve are pretty normal and pretty good and maybe even necessary. 
And so I'm wondering, what was Jesus getting at when he says we cannot serve two masters? It seems like it's pretty normal that we serve a number of masters. Let's go over a few of these. We could call these the masters of our universe. Here's a sampling of the masters of our universe. Someone informed me that uh, there no longer is an action line, a figure, a figure action, action figures, whatever they're called, uh, called the masters of the universe. I thought there was. I, how can there not be an action line of masters of the universe? And this was a shameless ploy of, of plagiarizing them, but it turns out that there's no longer any action figures like that. And so a lot of what I was going to say about those action figures is irrelevant. So let's move on. Masters of our universe. This is what happens when you are not in the toy market for 25 years. You forget what you don't know what's out there. Okay. But I do know there's Thomas the Train because my grandson is all into Thomas the Train. So uh, I'll look for a way to use that in a sermon here in the near future. Thomas, he's the one. He's the leader. Okay. God, hopefully, is one of the masters of our, of our universe, one of the ones that we feel obliged to serve, one of the ones that, that we're, we're, we invest time in, uh, one of the ones we make sacrifices for. Uh, hopefully, for most people listening here, our sense of self-worth is wrapped up in, in, in God, uh, and, and God affects our emotions and affects our attitudes and affects our behaviors. So, so God is, is, is one of the masters of our universe. But he's not the only master of our universe. There are others, other people and things that we feel compelled uh, to serve. If we're honest, some of us will admit that one of the masters that we feel compelled to serve is wealth, the acquisition of money and possessions and advancement of our career. Uh, Many people assume a servant posture towards the acquisition of wealth and possessions. They're religiously devoted to the acquisition of of, uh, wealth and and possessions. They make tremendous sacrifices, sometimes of their families and other things, in order to acquire more wealth and possessions. They invest a lot of time in pursuing the American dream. A lot of their self-worth is wrapped up in, in what they own and how much they own and what wealth they have and how fast their car is and how big their house is and things of that sort. And the acquisition of possessions and, and wealth affects their emotions and their sense of well-being. Uh, when they have them, they're happy. When they don't have them, they grow sad, which is why a lot, a lot of people are sad right now because we're losing a lot. But uh, wealth is one of the masters that many people serve. But even if you're not serving wealth and the acquisition of money and possessions, many of us have to have a job And uh, we have to serve that job, serve our employer, serve our boss. We assume a servant posture towards our job. We have a sense of obligation towards our job. We make sacrifices for our job. We invest as much time as we need to in our job. Maybe our sense of self-worth is somewhat wrapped up in our job. And what happens with our job can affect our emotions, our attitudes, and our behavior. So our job constitutes one of the masters of our universe that we need to serve. And then there are family and friends, of course. We assume, most of us, a servant posture towards our family and friends. We have a sense of obligation towards our family and friends. We make sacrifices for our family and friends. We invest time in our family and friends. And and our sense of well-being is wrapped up with our family and friends. And what goes on with our family and friends affects our attitude and our behaviors and our emotions. So our family and friends are, are part of the masters of our universe. For some people, there's physical appearance. No, all of us like to look our best and, and uh, you know, to be somewhat in shape, hopefully. That's normal. That's good. But for some people, though, this is kind of a master. 
They assume a servant posture towards their physical appearance, uh, keeping that sex appeal going. They're religiously devoted to working out, perhaps, or religiously devoted to their hair every day, or religiously devoted to, to uh, making sure that the wrinkles aren't seen and the rolls are tucked or, or, or what have you. They'll make tremendous sacrifices to keep that sex appeal going. They'll invest a lot of time into keeping that youthful look. Their sense of worth can be wrapped up into how, how, how people see them. Uh, do they look young and sexy and, and vibrant and the muscles are still bulging and and these are folks who tend not to age very gracefully because sooner or later you start to lose that buff look, that six-pack, uh, that, that uh, you know, sex appeal kind of thing. I don't, but most people do. I, I, it's just... Others find that they get more delusional as they grow older, yes. But for some people, physical appearance is one of the masters of their universe. And then there's some really nasty masters of the universe, like addictions. Uh, drugs and, and alcohol and sex addictions. Uh, some people are religiously devoted to getting their fix, whether it's drugs or sex or alcohol. Uh, they make tremendous sacrifices uh, to, to keep that fix going. They'll invest a lot of time and a lot of energy into getting that fix. Their sense of well-being is wrapped up with their fix. Many who are really in bondage to this only feel normal when they're getting their fix. And so obviously their, their addiction uh, affects their emotions, their attitudes, and their behavior. So alcohol, drugs, and sex are powerful masters of some people's universe. Another drug of choice is religion. Some folks, like the Pharisees, serve the master of religion. It can be a very harsh master. They're religiously devoted to advancing, protecting, and defending the, the assumed rightness of all of their beliefs and the assumed holiness of all of their behaviors. And they're religiously devoted to noticing the contrast between their rightness and other people's wrongness and their holiness and other people's sinfulness. And a great deal of their well-being is wrapped up into sort of drinking from their superiority, the contrast, their judgments of others. Religion is a powerful master that people throughout history have served. And then, of course, another historic master is, is, is nationalism. Some people assume a strong servant position toward their nation. They have a religious devotion toward their country. They make tremendous sacrifices for their country. They may be willing to kill or be killed for their country. Their sense of self-worth is wrapped up in the assumed superiority of their country. What goes on with their country affects their emotions and attitudes and behavior. So nationalism has always been a strong master of people throughout history, and it still is yet today. And then there's, there's the run-of-the-mill masters like sports and hobbies and things like that. There are some folks who are religiously devoted to a certain sport, certain activity, religiously devoted to their golf game or, or their softball game or, or, or whatever hobby they might have, hunting, bowhunting, whatever. And uh, th- there's a, a normal place for that. Uh, but for some people, it can get to the point of being absolute bondage and servitude. They're religiously devoted to the team. And when their team loses, it definitely affects their emotions and attitudes and behaviors. There are wives, I know, who pray for the Vikings to win because their husbands are grumps the whole week if they lose. <laughs> right now, they're probably praying, oh, Lord, help the Vikings beat the Giants today. <laughs> I don't want to live with them if they lose. Uh, you know, it, it affects their attitude and, and, and things of that sort. So sports and hobbies can be masters of our universe. And then there's oddball people like me and Dean Zimmerman who's here today who, who uh, have, have a weird religious devotion to books and ideas. Uh, 
I, I woke up this morning, three o'clock in the morning, and I had an idea. I couldn't go, couldn't go back to sleep, so I get up. And then I took a nap at six in the morning and almost missed the first service. It was really bad. I forgot I shut off my alarm because often I forget to shut off my alarm. And then um, it goes off at seven o'clock when I'm supposed to get up. And my wife is not happy about that because she wants to sleep another two hours. So I remembered to shut my alarm off. But then I forgot to shut it back on when I took my nap. And so I woke up right on the time first service started. And <clears throat> it, was, it was a harrowing experience. But I, I, it was, that, that happens to me a lot because... I, there's this thing about books. This, this, I, I have to, I, I spend a lot of time, invest a lot of time and make a lot of sacrifices to get, you know, on average 30 or more hours of, of reading in a week in philosophy and theology and, and history. It's kind of a compulsion. If I don't get that, I, I get irritable. It affects my attitudes and, and emotions. It's just, it's something that's just there. And um, I, I pour myself into it. Um, you know, it's, it's a, my wife says it's a quasi-autistic feature of my life. But it's certainly one of the masters of my universe. My well-being is to a large degree determined by, how, by what's going on between my ears at any moment. If things are making sense, if ideas, if, there's, if I'm in harmony, if ideas are making sense, and my worldview is all in congruity, I'm happy. It doesn't matter what's going on around me. I'm very content. But if there's cognitive dissonance in my head, if ideas aren't matching up, if something isn't in line, I'm very irritable. And it doesn't matter how good things are going on around me, I get irritable. Ah, I'm way weirder than you guys knew. <laughs> now the world knows. Uh, but it's just one of those, those kind of things. So, so that is one of the masters of my universe, I have to admit. I have a servant posture towards books, articles, reading, and ideas. For geeky types like Dean and me, uh, that's, you know, that, that is our sports, our hobby and whatnot. So we all have masters, right? Some of these masters are destructive, but some of them are pretty normal if we keep them in balance, pretty appropriate. And in fact, they're even necessary. You've got to hold on your job, which means you have to assume a servant posture towards it, which leads to the question, what is Jesus talking about? You can't serve two masters. Why would he, without any qualification, just say you cannot serve two masters? We serve more than two all the time. What's the problem? I could see what he would be getting at if he would have said, you cannot serve two masters if one of the masters is a destructive drug addiction or a sex addiction. Because addictions tend to destroy the competition. Have you noticed that? If you're really in bondage to alcohol, drugs, or sex, uh, it tends to be such a lord over your life that it erodes your allegiance to your family, to your friends, to your job, which is why people who get seriously addicted tend to blow up their life, lose their job, often lose their family, and things of that sort. Uh, which is why if you struggle with one of those things, I want to encourage you to get help now. And maybe come to our refuge ministry on Thursday nights where you can find a support group to help you out of that because that is really, really destructive. If that's what Jesus meant, well, then there's no problem. But that's not what Jesus meant. He didn't qualify it at all. He just says, point blank, you cannot serve two masters. But when we're talking about more normal masters, like reading, for example, that's totally normal. What, 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 what's the problem? Well, you know, we all have these obligations, these allegiances, these masters, and we just have to juggle them. Isn't that what we do? We juggle them. Um, you know, we, 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 we negotiate time with it. So I've got my devotion to books and stuff like that, and then I have my devotion towards my wife and my family, and, and I just have to balance that. And I will admit that early on that was difficult. <laughs> 
um, early on, we, we, you know, we had to work some things out. It started with our honeymoon because she found out that I snuck a bunch of books in my suitcase on a honeymoon. My dad, my dad told me, he sent me studies, he said, Greg, okay, lesson number one, don't take any books with you on your honeymoon. You tend to fall and get absorbed in them, so don't take any books on your honeymoon. And then I snuck some in. A couple dozen, eh? what's the problem? And then when Shelly found out that I had all these books, my dad was right, okay, I'm going to say that. My dad... It was a dumb thing to do, so we had some things to work out, but, you know, it took us 12 years or so, but, but now we've been married 29 years, and, and I think we've got a good balance here. We understand one another. I think, you know, there's, and my friends, you know, initially, uh, they kind of wondered about this, but now they're totally cool with it. We go on vacation, and they no longer get offended if I don't go out with them, but I want to stay home in my room to get my fix, because i got to read so much, otherwise I get irritable. So they understand that. What's the problem? There's a balance there, and that's what we all do, isn't it? We all do this. You know, you've got your job, you've got your hobbies, you've got your sports, you know, you've got, you've got your religious devotion, and, and there's just things we balance. Family, friends, uh, this is what we do. What's the problem? And for most of us listening to this message right now, God is one of those allegiances. Maybe even the most important allegiance. There's, we, we sacrifice for God, we invest time in our relationship with God, but we balance that with other allegiances that we have to spend time with. He's one of the masters that we serve, and we just do a balancing act. In some ways, that seems perfectly normal, doesn't it? It's so normal that it's pretty common for theologians to talk about dual allegiances, dual allegiances. And so you'll hear people say, well, we have a dual allegiance to God and to country, a dual allegiance to God and our family, a dual allegiance to God and our job, and things of that sort. Which makes perfect good sense. Trouble is, as far as I can see, that's exactly what Jesus is denying. When he says you cannot serve two masters, what does that mean if it doesn't mean you can't have dual allegiances? You can't have dual masters. What so often happens is we, we live under the tyranny of our common sense. And so we read the, a passage that's saying something very radical, but we just sort of water it down to fit our common sense. Oh, when Jesus says you cannot serve two masters, what he meant is we're supposed to have dual allegiances. <laughs> no. He doesn't say you can't serve two masters equally. Make sure that God is the most important master. He doesn't say that. Uh, he doesn't say that. Make sure that God is, is the supreme master. He says simply, you cannot serve two masters. What he's saying, so radical. If you serve God, there can be no competitors. If God is your master, then he can't be merely one of your masters. If, if money is your master or if anything else is your master, then God is not your master. Jesus is saying that uh, the only one we're supposed to really assume a servant posture towards, the only one, is God. He's our one master. He's our one Lord. And that seems patently absurd because we have to assume a servant posture towards our boss, towards our family, towards our friend, uh, somewhat of a servant posture to keeping our bodies healthy. And there's nothing wrong with that. Even some of our servant postures towards sports and hobbies and books seem very, very normal. What is the problem? It seems crazy to say that we're only supposed to have a servant posture towards God. Now, my working assumption, as I've shared before, is this. If, Jesus, if something Jesus says sounds crazy, it's not. And if something Jesus says sounds wrong, it's not. I might be crazy, and I might be wrong, but the Son of God is never crazy or wrong. 
So if this sounds crazy, when you hear it real honestly, and, and, and take it for what it is, if it sounds crazy, it must be because we're missing something. And it's important that we then ask the question, what are we missing? What are we missing? I'd rather come to you and say, you know what, I don't get this one, go figure it out, and not give you any solution, than to say, well, what it really means is we're supposed to have dual allegiances. I'd ra- rather than make it commonsensical and everything, as much as I hate cognitive dissonance in my head, I'd rather be honest with the text and say, you know what, I don't get it, you can figure it out, come back to me when you got an answer, uh, than to give you something that just fits our common sense. Remember what, God, what, what Jesus said earlier, that which is highly valued by people can be detestable with God. Uh, you, know, you could easily transmorph this into something that people want to hear, but that's exactly what we're not supposed to do. What are we missing? What are we missing? Here's what I think we're missing. We tend to, especially in the West, compartmentalize our life vigorously, viciously. Uh, We have categories that we live in. And each master has their own category. Our, our, Our compartments. So we've got the God compartment, the job compartment, the family compartment, the friend compartment, the sports compartment, the book compartment, or what have you. And we, and we keep those things kind of uh, uh, separated from one another. And so God is one of our compartments. He's one of our masters. And what I think Jesus is saying here is we're supposed to drop all of the... Or what we might... If, if we operate with that grid, what we hear Jesus saying is drop all the compartments except for God. God's supposed to be your only compartment. Wait, 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 wait. Because see, if, if, if that's what he's saying, then it sounds, and I've met people like this, that all of our time and all of our energy and everything is supposed to be just on God to the neglect of everything else. And so I've known people who quit their job so they can pray more, which is great until you start going hungry. <laughs> you know, and, or they neglect their family. Oh, I'm just supposed to be... And, and, and so we, we, well, we, 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 if we hear Jesus in our compartmentalized system, then it sounds like he's saying neglect everything else except for God. But that, I think, is impossible. You have to earn a job to eat. We have to earn a living. And, and you have to spend time with your family and things of that sort. I think what Jesus is saying here is far more radical than that. He's, he's telling us to completely reorientate our life. Think about it like this. Here's two diagrams. Here's how most of us do our life. In fact, probably all of us uh, do our lives to some degree like this. This is my dome of competing masters. Now, by dome, I mean my kingdom. All of us have a domain of responsibilities and things like that. Is You are king of the dome of your life, and this is what falls under your dome. Uh, there's all these different allegiances. There's God, family, wealth, friends, career, job, health, addictions, if that's what you're into, sports and hobbies. And we negotiate time with all these. We juggle these things. But we're the ones who are in charge. We call the shots. Uh, It's our dome. Now, I think what Jesus is getting at is this. There's to be one master of our universe, one and only one, one allegiance in our life. We do have a domain of responsibility, but all of that is to be under uh, God. And every aspect of our dome, of our responsibility, of our kingdom, is to be uh, looked at in service to God. Everything is brought under the reign of God. Our only obligation, our only allegiance is to God. But because it's to God, it encompasses everything in our life. It includes our family. It includes our job. It includes our friends. It even includes our recreation. The only job in life is to serve God 
And one of the ways that we serve God is by serving our family, by, by, by being as good a husband as you can be and as good a wife as you can be and as good a parent as you can be and to be as good at the job as you can possibly be. And, and, uh, and so you serve God. It, under the reign of God, being a good husband becomes an act of worship towards God. Being a good wife becomes an act of worship towards God. Being a good citizen is an act of worship towards God. One of the ways we serve God is through our family and, and through every other thing that we do. It's, the life becomes an act of worship. Notice in this paradigm, it's all, it's all to be made an act of worship. There are no dual allegiances. There are no competing allegiances. There's only one all-inclusive allegiance. This becomes really clear uh, in, in Romans 13 when Paul tells us to submit to government. Submit to government. But he tells us to submit to government, not because government has any mastery of us or we, that we owe it anything or that it has any authority over us. He, we're to submit to government because we're submitted to God and God tells us to submit to government insofar as it's possible. Government doesn't have any autonomous authority. Nothing has any autonomous authority over us. The only one who has authority over us is God, our one Lord, our one master. But he then calls us to submit to one another in, in fellowship groups, in marriage, and things of that sort. It's all a means of worshiping God. And whatever allegiances we might have that are inconsistent with the character of God as revealed in Christ, or inconsistent with the will of God as revealed in the New Testament, it's got to go. Because everything is to be used as a means of worshiping God, as a means of serving God. So the destructive addictions, for example... They gotta go because that's, it's, it's, it's not consistent with God to be destroying your life. That just is not in character with the one who is life itself. And, and whenever nation or family or job requires us to do something that's inconsistent with our allegiance to God, it's gotta go. That's why you know, Peter says to the authorities, he says, well, we have to obey God rather than human beings. So if you gotta put us in jail, you gotta put us in jail. But our one and only allegiance is to God, and that encompasses everything else in our life. And the way that we serve him is by serving all that he calls on us to serve. But our motivation and goal is to serve God through all of these other means. Jesus is in this passage, I believe, inviting us to a radically centered, integrated, holistic way of doing life. And it's brilliant because it's profoundly simple. At every moment, in every situation, there's only one thing that's needful, and that is to do the will of God. So in your work environment, you do the will of God by earning a living. And we do the will of God by using the wealth that we acquire as he wills. It's not a competing master. No, it's just one of the ways that we serve the one master. And we do the will of God by loving our, our family and by loving our friends, by loving our enemies, by submitting to government as much as possible and disobeying government when we need to. And by staying healthy uh, so that we can do kingdom work and, and even by engaging in recreation, sports and hobbies, those things in balance are very good and very necessary because that's part of how God intended life to be lived. But the goal, folks, the goal is to make every aspect of our dome, uh, our domain of responsibilities, Make every aspect a dome over which God reigns. Where everything is centered on God, it's orientated around God, and everything becomes an act of worship. The goal is to tear down all, all compartments. And so that it's no longer us who are in charge, it's God who is in charge, and all compartments are being destroyed. The goal, 
the goal here. And this is, this is, this is radical, but it's so beautiful. And none of us have attained it yet, but it's what we're striving towards. It's, it's got to be the goal of our life, is to realize that you worship God by being godly in your family. And that is as much worship as when you come to church on the weekends and, and, and sing songs. That the, 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 uh, the, the division between sacred and secular is a myth. It's an illusion. It's all sacred if we make it sacred by inviting God into every part of it. And everything we do becomes an act of worship. Shoveling the, the snow becomes an act of worship as you're doing it as an act of love uh, you know, and responsibility towards your family and going to your so, so-called secular job. By being faithful at that, that is an act of worship. Our life becomes one sustained act of worship when it's all brought under the reign of God by making sure that we have only one master, one allegiance, one king, one authority in our life. And that is the Lord God Almighty. And see, what Jesus is inviting us to with this, this holistic way of doing life, this radically integrated way of doing life, is he's inviting us to, the, this is the life of the kingdom. This is, this is, point blank, the life of the kingdom. And this is, this is the life of peace. It's participating in the life of God. When God is simply one of the masters that we serve, and we are still the Lord of our own domain, what happens is we get fragmented. And we all experience this. Most of our misery, most of our stress, most of our anxiety is caused because we have competing masters and we're still in charge and we're choosing how we're going to juggle all of this. We don't have a center around which everything is organized. We don't have a single thread that runs throughout the whole thing. We're not integrated people. We're being dismembered, pulled in all these different directions. And there's no way to have peace if your life is fragmented like that. We live in the kingdom to the extent that we have a center that's integrated into everything. We live in the kingdom to the extent that we have one and only one allegiance. Uh, I often recommend the practice, the discipline of practicing the presence of God. It's the most challenging and most simple discipline there is. But it's so important to this. Practicing the presence of God is simply where you, 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 you uh, try to train your mind to stay awake to the reality that at every moment, in every situation, you are surrounded by the love of God. You swim through the ocean of God's love at every moment. He's, he's always there. He's the most important fact of, of, of every moment. And so you want to stay awake to that. One of the reasons why we're so fragmented in our life is because we're so fragmented in our consciousness. Uh, we have these compartments here. And so we shut God off, and then we shut God on. And most of the time, God is off. And it's impossible to live an integrated life if that's your, your mindset. So by practicing the presence of God, we simply are inviting God into every situation and making that situation, that circumstance, a, a sacred moment. That's practicing the presence of God. Open your mind to be aware of God at all times, whatever else you're doing. And that becomes then a thread that, that weaves your life together. And at every moment, in every situation, no ifs, ands, or buts, the only obligation you have, though it's manifested a million different ways, the only obligation is to do the will of God. And that, folks, is also the definition of freedom. If you are a slave of God, moment by moment, you are free. Because you don't have all these other competing masters there. You've got one and only one. I want to say one final word about this. And that is this. I would feel very hypocritical if I didn't confess to you that I feel a million miles away from this. Um, it's, I, it seems to me that the, the, the more I practice this, the more I become aware of how far away I am from it. How, how 
literally disintegrated, disintegrated, not integrated my life is. How fragmented it is. I didn't even realize it. And the more I come to, in moments when I really feel integrated, it only sheds light on just how far I have to go. Do you find that to be the case? I just got to be honest here because otherwise I feel like a hypocrite. If you walk out of here saying, gosh, we have to aspire to be like Greg who's so integrated, I want to tell you not to do that. I'm not the hero on this one. Jesus is the hero. I'm a failure, okay? I'm going to confess that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very good at that. Yes. No. So I I just got to confess that. Here's the thing. That living out the kingdom is something we have to do moment by moment. And it always involves repentance. Repentance just means you turn. It's a turn. And so as I realize that I'm doing my secular compartmentalized life, which is often, when I wake up to that reality, I simply turn. I repent. And now I want to Make doing God's will the only thing that matters in that moment and then in the next moment. But this isn't a once and for all thing. That's why I so am against this idea that that you you pray a prayer and then you coast the rest of your life because you got your legal assurance. This isn't about legality. It's about cultivating a relationship that transforms our character moment by moment. And this, by the way, is the biblical concept of salvation. Uh, Yes, there's a sense in which we get saved when we first submit our life to Christ. But the Bible talks about salvation in three tenses. We get saved, we're being saved, and we shall be saved. And salvation, the concept is one of wholeness. It's not just escaping the consequences of sin. It's primarily about learning how to participate in the life of God here and now, in the wholeness of God here and now, in the peace and the joy of an integrated life here and now. And and we're in training for this here and now. And so we are being saved as we learn how to cultivate a life which is subjected to one and only one master, and that is God. We are in the process of being saved. And so as we end this year and go into the next year, I'm going to give you an assignment. And the assignment is this. Do not, please, do not make a New Year's resolution that in 2009 you're going to live an integrated life with God as your only master. Don't, don't make a year-long resolution. This year, I will be serving only one master. Uh, like most resolutions, that is a silly resolution. Here is a doable challenge. Uh, we make God your one and only master and integrate God into every moment of your life for the next minute. All right? And then for the next minute. And now when you're on the gathering area, spending some time meeting folks, being, practicing hospitality, which we all should be doing, can you remain aware of God's presence and, and just be open to, to uh, you know, whatever God wants you to do? One of the things about being submitted to God, doing God's will moment by moment, is that sometimes you'll feel a, uh, he'll, he'll put an impulse in your spirit to, to do something you otherwise wouldn't do. You're actually becoming a sheep that hears the voice of the master, which is what we're all supposed to be cultivating. So, so don't try to bite off a whole year. Bite it off minute by minute by minute. I encourage you to envision, Holy Spirit, help us to get a picture of this. Envision your family life as being as spiritual as church or any other time, a prayer time, devotional time, that the goal there is to, is to manifest the character of God. And you're serving God by the way you're being a husband or the way you're being a wife or the way you're being a parent or the way you're being a neighbor, you're serving God, the one master. That is your only job. And envision your job, not as a break from religious stuff or kingdom stuff. No, that's as much kingdom stuff as what you're doing right now. It's all kingdom stuff. It's all kingdom stuff because our king, our only king is God and he encompasses all the stuff. 
Envision that. Get a picture of that. Remind yourself of that. And the final thing I'll say, because it's just so important, is this. If you don't have relationships with people to help you do this, I encourage you to seek out those relationships. People who will join in this radical journey with you. Hey, do you feel like really bucking the, the, the system, the principalities and powers, swimming upstream in this culture, and, and living this radically integrated life where we're going to remain aware of God's presence and, and we're going to make him the one and only master of our life and sub- subject only to him? If that's your goal and that's my goal, why don't we help each other do that? Because you can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. You will be as successful at living the kingdom alone as my finger would be successful being detached from my hand. It's not going to work. You're part of the body. We need one another on this to encourage one another, uh, to, to, you know, to hold each other's hands as we're jumping off the cliff into the radical kingdom. We've got to do it together. So if you don't have people in your life that share your kingdom values and, and you can challenge one another in love and, and encourage one another, I encourage you to pray for that to happen. They're running the aisles here at Woodland Hills Church. Hallelujah. Whew, glory, 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 glory. I encourage you to seek out those relationships. I want to end with a prayer, and um, uh, with the prayer teams come up here, if there's any need that you have that you would like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks, or if you just want to pray up at the altar on your own, you're free to do that. But I end this year with this prayer. Father, keep us awake to your presence. Keep us, Lord God, committed to you. Help us to see everything in our life as an aspect of our devotion to you, because our allegiance is to you and to you alone. Help us to realize that there is no other authority, independent authority in our life, nothing other than you, but you encompass all things. And Lord God, help us to then do our family life and do our friendship life and do our study life and our sports life, our recreational life, every aspect of our life, to do it in service to you, the source of all life, the source of all love, the source of all that is good, as we learn how to be integrated kingdom people, living in your love, manifesting your love, at all times, in all places. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said for the last time in 2008, amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Go on and build the kingdom.